I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, November 10th. I'm Karen Brown, November 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a look at Mississippi's ongoing nursing shortage and a 2007 missing persons case casts a shadow over the impending execution of Mississippian David Cox. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians seeking health insurance coverage can now enroll in healthcare.gov. The enrollment period began November 1st and continues through January 15th. Lottie Miner is with Oak Hills Regional Community Development. She says they're the only navigator organization in the state this year. Miner says they have over 50 navigators around the state to help people enroll. And they are available to work with consumers in person. Obviously, we're being as careful as possible because we're still in a pandemic. So um, they try to practice physical distancing, um, wear masks. Miners says they also offer curbside and virtual assistance. More than 100,000 Mississippians enrolled in healthcare.gov last year. Coming up, an inside look at Mississippi's nursing shortage. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. When the Delta variant of COVID-19 hit the Deep South, Mississippi already faced a shortage of working medical professionals. The state emergency management agency pursued short-term solutions to the problem, like recruiting traveling nurses on six-week contracts. But the program faced stiff competition from deep-pocketed states like Texas and Tennessee, who needed contract nurses of their own. Now, those contracts... Uh, MEMA was able to secure have expired and the situation is as dire as ever. That's according to Susan Russell, who's the chief nursing officer at Singing River Health System. She speaks with MPB's Michael Guidry. 
hospitals across this state have seen nurses leaving to get these very, very lucrative contracts. And actually, when everything's said and done, we have a bigger shortage than we did before the nurses were given here through the MEMA program. That's very, very critical for us because, remember, we were already looking at a shortage, and it's almost like the hole is bigger after the departure. You know, we just are not able to get a handle on recruiting people the way we need to. Uh, the vacancies are too big, too many, uh, and there are just too few applicants. So everybody in the state was concerned about this. We started having calls weeks ago knowing that this was coming, but just not not knowing what solutions were out there. And the answer is right now we don't have solutions on how we can solve this situation. We are still sitting, you know, at less than or right around 50 percent of the population fully vaccinated. And I know the state health officer has expressed some concerns about uh, a winter surge similar to to last last year. Based on the differences in staffing, the shortages, the the exodus you've seen, what are your concerns about a potential, you know, winter wave uh, considering beds have had to close due to the, the shortage of nurses? What has happened after each and every one of those surges, which last about a six-week period, people come in, incredible volume, the first three or four weeks. With COVID, people stay a couple of weeks, and then by week six to eight, you start really seeing the numbers drop down. But every time the numbers drop down, remember, there are those other patients who are ill, have chronic illnesses, need surgeries, need care, that have kind of been on the back burner, and now they need that care, and we are just able to staff less and less beds every single time after these surges happen and it's almost gotten to be a certain level of predictability and like i said i talk to people all the way from north mississippi which is the far reaches of the state all the way down here to the coast you know our um, friends over in harrison county hancock county and every single one of them have less and less beds to put patients in so if we do get to the situation we're having a fifth surge there's just less places and people to take care of them how much does the fluctuation, whether it's losing staff or having staff come in on these travel contracts because there aren't enough in-house to, to, to manage the situation, how much does that do to or how much does it affect the, the, the camaraderie on the, the, at the building level uh, when there is that fluctuation? You always lose some trajectory. Everybody knows if you have a temporary staff member, they're just not going to be as good of a uh, – fit as somebody who permanently works there. And plus overall morale. If you are a nursing staff member who have worked unbelievable amounts over time, working and taking the toll of what COVID does to staff members, the death, the dying, the people who are just, you know, really separated from their families and you're there for their emotional support and you see somebody come in and they're making three to four times what you are, you can't help but say that doesn't make me feel very good about the job I'm doing. Um, but right now they do understand we don't have uh, choices. We are having to get temporary staffing in. But at the end of the day, we really want to get back to our grassroots of having our own staff that, you know, are trained here and can work up to the top level that they're able to do. And like I said, work as a team uh, and be engaged with the community. Susan Russell is Singing River Health System's chief nursing officer. Coming up, David Cox is set to be executed in Mississippi this Wednesday. His connection to an unsolved 2007 missing persons case raises questions as to what criminal justice in the state truly means. And it puts the absolute finality of the death penalty into stark relief. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. And I'm Rob Lane. I produce the show. In a little more than 48 hours, David Neal Cox will be dead. That's if all goes as scheduled. The 50-year-old has been on death row for over a decade. He's fired his lawyers and withdrawn his appeals. He says he deserves to die. If and when he is executed, he'll become the first recipient of capital punishment in Mississippi in over nine years. In 2010, David Cox had just gotten out of prison. A year earlier, he'd been convicted of statutory rape for assaulting his stepdaughter, L.K. His estranged wife, Kim, reported the crime. David wanted revenge. He bought a 40 caliber handgun and drove to Kim's house. She was there, along with L.K. and several of her and David's children. David forced his way into the house, shot Kim twice, and held her and L.K. at gunpoint for eight hours as law enforcement pleaded with him to surrender. Court records document that, quote, while Kim lay dying, Cox sexually assaulted L.K. in Kim's presence on three separate occasions. The standoff ended when a SWAT team took David into custody at 3.30 in the morning. By that time, Kim was already dead. It's a horrific crime, and David Cox stands to pay for it with his life. But there's another part to this story. Family members and investigators say David may have information that could help bring closure to the grieving family of another woman who went missing years before Kim Cox's murder. And if David dies on November 17th, as he's set to, whatever he knows might die with him. In 2007, three years before he murdered his wife, David Cox lived in Pontotoc County, Mississippi, not far from where his brother Jeff and Jeff's wife Felicia shared a mobile home. We spoke with Felicia's daughter, a woman named Amber Miskelly. Did your mother have a relationship, a friendly relationship, any kind of interaction with David Cox? Not really. She was best friends with his wife, Kim, and he didn't too much like that very much. He was just, he would always not hardly speak to her, and if he did, he was really rude about everything. Do you know why he didn't like your mother, didn't want any contact with her? I do know it had a lot to do with um, her addiction with pain medication and stuff like that. And he blamed my mother for his brother going back to jail. Why did he blame her? Because they were stopped um, or they went to a, a random roadblock. And he had my mom's pills in his pocket and he was on probation. And so he went back to jail. But they were her prescription pills and she was in the vehicle with him. But they were just out of the bottle. What do you know about the day she disappeared? I just know that she had went over to David and Kim's house because she was going to get Kim to take her to see Jeff because he was in jail at the time. And Jeff is who again? Jeff was her husband, which is David's brother. And then all I know is she never made it back home. I don't even think she made it back to her vehicle and then... I mean, I don't know how long it was after that that the police came to where I was at to tell me 
that there was a missing persons report filed on her. How old were you? I was 18. According to the missing persons report, when Felicia showed up at David and Kim's house, David met her at the door and told her Kim was stuck at a doctor's appointment. Felicia called Kim, and the two agreed to meet up later in the day. But Felicia never showed. Kim got worried and reported her missing to the police. This is where Dr. Mac Huddleston enters the story. In his life, Mac's been a man of many trades. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Later, he worked as a licensed veterinarian. He's now a Mississippi state representative, but in 2007, he was employed as an investigator for the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Department. We got a call that this lady was missing, and we went out there, and uh, her husband's dad lived at a little at the end of a little gravel road. And right where you turn off side of the blacktop road and go down that way is where they found her car. And they found her car keys. And from day one, I was suspicious of David Cox. And uh, I, I watched him. I, w- I was afraid he might do, do something, you know, out of the way. Did you say that the car was found, did you say near the home of David Cox's father? Yes. How close? And David Felicia's ex-husband, husband, or whatever. Jeff, lived in right? lived trailer right there. Yes. yes. He was in jail on federal charges, I think, at the time. I'm not sure. Picture yourself standing on this road. A little gravel road goes up to Mr. Cox's house, and I could throw a football from Mr. Cox's house down to uh, where Jeff lived. In your experience as an investigator, a situation like that in which someone's car is found locked that is troubling to you, that suggests that someone hadn't just run off? Absolutely. I, 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 that, that's what I believe. We talked to Mr. Uh, to the Cox boy's daddy. He was up in years. I, want, I watched him, too. I want to be very careful about that. I feel like somebody we talked to there knew something. That's Alex Falver. He worked the case alongside Mac. You know, I felt like Jeff and he was incarcerated at the time. But, you know, I always found it odd and strange that he got out and he never called, he never questioned. So I always kind of felt like he he must have knew a little something. But it meant nothing without evidence. And the one piece of physical evidence the cops had, Felicia's car, wasn't yielding any further clues. First of all, when we first saw the car, it looked like it had been wiped down inside. We sent it to the state crime lab at Batesville, and they, they didn't find anything inside the car, any, no evidence whatsoever. It sat at the record service and then was later taken to J.C.'s house, which is Jeff and David's dad. That's Amber again. That's where it sat, and then later on when Jeff got a new woman in his life, she was driving my mother's vehicle around town. All the while, Mac Huddleston says he kept an eye on the man who'd caught his attention from the beginning of the investigation, David Cox. From day one, he was he was a person of interest for sure. I don't know that that was ever published. We just kept trying to dig, dig, dig. And, uh, Alex and I went down there and, and uh, walked around the outside of the, the mobile home there. David either came up in the car or he was in the car and he had the trunk open. And the whole time we were there, he fiddled around in the trunk. 
trunk. You know how it, somebody can put their head down, but you can look at them and tell they're still looking at you? I remember that. More after the break. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. And I'm Rob Lane. Pontotoc County, 2007. Felicia Cox has disappeared. Investigator Mac Huddleston has strong suspicions, but little evidence. We didn't have any leads, and I worked day and night on that case. I even had an airplane come look at a, at a lake nearby. Bought crime scene out and all of that. That's Alex Favre. We've gotten uh, dogs, I think, from Search Dogs South. I think where they come from and all the woods surrounding the, the vehicle and stuff where it was found. When all that turned up nothing, investigators say they took a closer look at David Cox, the man who'd last seen Felicia, as well as David's wife, Kim, who was one of Felicia's close friends. The, the one thing that haunts me to this day is that uh, Alex and I had been out there and, and talked to uh, them, and we lined up a, a polygraph. We had the time and date and had our polygrapher, I guess you would say. And when we got ready to start, David didn't come that day. And Kim was just there, and she said, uh, David doesn't want me to do this. Said something to the effect that, you know, this is just a, a bunch of bull, and they'll write what they want to into, and they're just negative. If Kim had any information, Max says, she wasn't going to share it. And nothing else was shaking loose either. There weren't any witnesses. There wasn't anybody around. Nobody seen anything. It was just a vehicle found. And, you know, from that point, that, that was it. Deep in his gut, Mac Huddleston believed he knew who was responsible for the disappearance. But eventually, he moved on. He got elected to the legislature and re-elected and re-elected again. Then, just a few weeks ago, David Cox, now 10 years removed from having murdered Kim, having fired his lawyers and withdrawn his appeals, received an execution date of November 17th. And when Mac heard the news, he thought of Felicia. My wife and I were sitting here the other night, and when this news came on TV and his picture and all that sort of thing, and I told my wife, I said, he killed her. Somebody will have to do a lot of convincing to convince me that he didn't do it. So where does all this leave Amber Miskelly? Amber says David's family never told her anything more than they told the cops. I did see um, Jeff out in town a few times, and I asked him, did he know what happened or anything? And he would just always say that he had no idea, and he just believed that she ran off. They were still married, your mother? Yes. And he never pursued yes, it ma'am. to find out what happened to her? Nope. He never done anything. Do you think that anyone in your family, even you, will have the opportunity to ask David one more time what happened to your mother? No, I don't think I will get to. Um, I'm not sure that I'll get to go to his execution or anything, but I have wrote him a letter, and I sent it off uh, Saturday, October 28th. And I don't know if he got it or not yet, but I did write him asking him if he would please tell me if he knew anything or had any information. What are you going to feel once he's executed 
if you don't have any answers? I'm not really sure at this time. Um, I'm not going to say I'm just going to quit searching because I'm not, but I guess I'll just have to figure out a different direction to go or find more people to talk to. If Amber wants to find more people to talk to, she's running out of options. It's now been more than a decade since Kim Cox was murdered. J.C., David's father, is gone too. He lived until the age of 95 and died in 2018. Jeff Cox wasn't so lucky. He died in 2017 when he was only 53. A few days ago, I spoke with a man named Robert Dunham. He's executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, which is a nonprofit that monitors issues related to capital punishment. We spoke over Zoom, so apologies for the audio quality. David Cox is what's called a volunteer. Uh, and those are individuals who have voluntarily waived their rights uh, in order to expedite their executions. The demographics of the volunteers, 85% white male, also reflect the demographics of suicides. There's a very close correlation uh, between mental illness and volunteer suicides. David Neal Cox, the man who's set to be executed in Mississippi, is is a person of interest, basically, and the last living person of interest in a missing persons case from 2007. And I've spoken with family members, I've spoken with, spoken with investigators, and they all believe that he has the answers to what happened to this woman who has never been seen or heard of since 2007. Is there historical legal precedent for a situation like that? And in such cases, has there ever been any kind of intervention to put a stay on an execution to try to wring information out of someone? You know, these are rare situations. They come up from time to time. It ultimately comes down to a decision by the executive branch in the state in which the execution is going to take place. Does the governor feel like a reprieve uh, is something that will ultimately be in the interests of justice? Is it more important to execute this prisoner now uh, than it is to give relief to the family of the, uh, the woman who is missing. That ultimately becomes a policy decision, and it's a, it's a difficult situation uh, for the state to be in, but um, it happens from time to time. I can't, I can't say that there's a right answer. They have to make a judgment about what, what they think the likelihood of cooperation would be, and they have to make a judgment as to what that cooperation is worth. And is it relevant that, as you said, Mr. Cox is a volunteer, which makes him more of an active participant in this procedure than he might otherwise be. You know, it, it gives him agency in the situation, if you will. It may well mean that he is using the prospects of execution to avoid giving information in that case. And in a perverse sense, executing him while there are questions remaining gives him power over the victim's family uh, that he wouldn't have if the execution were stayed. Ultimately, if he does have information and he doesn't cooperate, he can still be executed. That's something that the state can do uh, at any time. The real question is, what does the state think is more important? A few minutes ago, we heard Amber say she won't give up searching for her mother even after David is dead. She says she's even heard whispers that a person with secondhand information about Felicia's disappearance may be waiting until after the execution to come forward. But she acknowledges the situation is deeply uncertain and set to become even more so in the coming days. David Cox is currently being held at Parchman Prison. 
We reached out to the Mississippi Department of Corrections to request an interview with him and were denied. In a brief phone call, the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Department confirmed the broad details of Felicia Cox's disappearance, but noted David Cox was never formally made a suspect in the case. The department declined further comment, citing an open investigation. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.